This is a prayer book that my father, Ferdinand Brand, gave to me when I left Berlin to come to England. If you were told that your child could take only one suitcase on their escape from Nazi Germany to bring with them for their new life in Britain, what would you pack in it for him or her? Ursula Gilbert's suitcase included a Jewish prayer book with a note inside it from her father. It's a book where he's put 10 guidelines of your father, how to behave, how to conduct yourself in life. In life. Um, I read it in German. It says, Gebetbuch der Israeliten, siebente Auflage mit zehn Leitsätzen deines Vaters. Der erste. Vergiss nie, dass du Jüdin bist, dass du für das Judentum gelitten hast und dass du es aber trotzdem oder deshalb... The note includes some really lovely, poignant life advice about being respectful, tolerant, humble about avoiding quarrels. I'm particularly struck by a few of the points that it includes. Number one, never forget that you are Jewish, that you suffered for Judaism, and that you still have to love it anyway, or because of it. Number four, despite everything, never forget Germany and the German language. Remember, it was your ancestral home. Do not participate in any hostile action against the country. It will ultimately only harm us Jews. Number six, always be grateful to the government of the country you come to because it gives you refuge. Six, sei stets voll Dankbarkeit gegen die Regierung des Landes, in du das Forging a sense of identity is complicated enough for most typical 15-year-olds. Now try to imagine what it must have been like for those children in Ursula's situation. She was Jewish and German. How did she see herself before leaving Germany? How did other Germans see her? How did her sense of self change when she came to Britain? How did British society see her? Ferdinand Bran would have had no way of knowing when he wrote this incredibly loving note to his daughter how difficult it would be for her to negotiate these three points. Be proud to be Jewish. Be proud to be German. Be grateful to be in Britain. It can be argued that issues relating to identity are at the core of what came to be known as the Holocaust. On the one hand, you have German Jews who, by and large, feel comfortable with that sort of hybrid identity. They didn't see any incongruity in identifying as both Jewish and German. On the other hand, you have Nazi ideology, which said, no, you cannot be both. If you're Jewish, then you're not truly German. You don't belong here. 
When the child refugees came to Britain on the kinder transport, they didn't leave these sorts of complexities behind. They brought their identity-based baggage with them, sometimes literally packed in their baggage. And they also stepped into a society, British society, with its own complexities in terms of attitudes towards Jews and towards Germans. So in this episode, I want to ask, how did these perceptions and attitudes affect what it felt like to be a refugee from Nazism living in Britain? Or more explicitly, what it felt like to be a Jewish refugee from Nazism? Welcome to Kinder Transport, Remembering and Rethinking, a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. I'm your host, Alex Maws. On this podcast, we make use of the AJR's Refugee Voices Archive, video testimonies from more than 250 Jewish refugees from Nazism, to shed light on one particular strand of the refugee experience, the Kinder Transport. You can learn more about the Refugee Voices Archive and find bonus content for each episode of this podcast at ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. Episode 7, Identity. Harvey Ottman was 12 years old when he came on the very first kinder transport. Like many, he was moved around from one living situation to another. At a temporary hostel not far from London, he was taught English along with 30 other refugees as a matter of urgency. The instructors told them to forget their German. From there, he went to live with a Jewish family in Manchester and even attended a Jewish school. But when the war began, fear of air raids forced him to evacuate. Well, I was evacuated to Blackpool. I lived with a family called Leeson's. He was an optician. Now, they had never met any Jewish people in their lives. They knew nothing about the Jewish religion. They thought I'd come from the moon because of my funny habits and the things I wouldn't eat. Uh, They just couldn't understand why I wouldn't go to church with them on Sunday. They were church, God-fearing people, very nice people, but they just hadn't met any, didn't know what uh, Jewish people, they believed in the Jewish people had horns, that sort of thing. This is, they could very well have lived on the moon, you would have thought. So when I, I sort of told them my background, they just were, they were astounded. Uh, and uh, rather than not eat, I would go to bed. I wouldn't eat because I, uh, I wouldn't eat the food, you see. Obviously, 
not all Jewish children were strictly religious when they came to Britain. This depended quite a bit on where they came from. German and Austrian Jews were less likely to be Orthodox than Polish Jews were, for example. But for those for whom their Jewish observance was an important part of their life, their new life in Britain could pose quite a challenge. As historian Mike Levy explains, Harvey Ottman's experience was fairly typical. At one end of the spectrum, you've got uh, Jewish boys and girls who really wanted and felt very felt very important to them from, on behalf of their own families that they'd left behind, that, uh, that they had to maintain their Jewish identity. And this would mean not eating um, food that wasn't kosher, uh, to attend synagogue, uh, to uh, mix with other Jewish people, to, and also to continue in their, their Jewish education. This is quite tricky because once the Jewish children who arrived in England, particularly in England, at the beginning of the period in late 38 to 39, in September, many of these children were re-evacuated for, out from London where many Jewish families uh, were and, and, and were able to look after them into the countryside where, by and large, the people looking after them would be either not Jewish or could be practicing Christians. And, of course, there were many cases that were recorded at the time that's since been revealed by scholars of uh, Christian families particularly seeking out uh, children who could be converted, you know, that kind of missionary zeal. Harvey's host family didn't try to convert him, but nonetheless, he struggled to maintain his Jewish observance in this strange new place. This sort of life uh, was getting a bit difficult, and I used to cry a lot at night. I used to go to the womb and just cry, because uh, they didn't know I, I wanted to keep Shabbat, and they really didn't know what that was all about. And uh, and then to uh, to ease the pain, they thought they'd buy me a pair of roller skates. Eventually, his commitment to strict religious observance became, by necessity, more flexible. And I was still at the stage when I wouldn't even carry a key on Shabbat. So they all wanted to go out in the evening. And I had no means after Shabbat was out to get back in. So uh, they said, oh, nobody will notice us. Put, this, put the key in the turnips of your trousers, which I did. I put the key in the turnips of my trousers. And I was shaking and so unhappy about this, sat there uh, singing as one does on the Shabbat. I'm going home. I found that uh, it started to rain. I started running. I got home, needless to say, the key, I was running and I lost the key. And I was sat on the doorstep in the pouring rain. And go, and they didn't have porches in those days <laughs> till somebody came home. But I carried the key after that, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Britain's chief rabbi, along with many of the Jewish organizations which had sponsored refugee children to come to the country recognized that this was an issue. Here's Mike Levy again. 
certainly there's a lot of struggle going on amongst the UK rabbinates in particular, Chief Rabbi Hertz, to rescue the children from the loss of this identity. And Jewish organizations did try to, uh, and were aware that identity was, was a really key issue and the maintenance of, of Jewish identity was a very important issue. So, for instance, the, the main refugee headquarters at Bloomsbury House uh, sent out regular uh, newsletters uh, around the Jewish festivals. They sent out instructions to local refugee committees to uh, provide some Jewish education for their children in their care around, you know, Jewish New Year and Yom Kippur and Passover and so on. And so these regular circulars would go around from Bloomsbury House reminding local refugee committees that um, the festivals were coming up and the children should be given some instruction where possible. So that was very much done at a central uh, level. Um, obviously, the further away from Bloomsbury House you were and the further away from a Jewish community you were, uh, as a child, it was, it was more and more difficult to, to have that in practice on the ground. Some Jewish organizations brought Jewish life to the most unlikely places. Gerald Jason was sent to Mill Isle, Northern Ireland, to live on a farm populated entirely by Jewish refugees, some adults and some children from the kinder transport. It was like an outpost of the old country there on the coast of the Irish Sea. He talks about being surrounded by people who are from, that's religious, and there being a shul on the farm, that's a synagogue. We had our shul there, and there were some people who were very from. Um, I think they mainly had come from Germany, but anyway, there were some people who were very from who could pray and, you know, knew the service. And we had a Sefer Torah, so... There was no problem. They danced Torah <laughs> from morning to night. No, they must have done some farm work. It just seemed to me that, you know, ah, Shreno, ah, Shreno, my farm, my farm, my farm, you know, and stuff like that all the time, all the time. And they could keep it up. They could keep it up for hours and hours. The issues faced by Jewish children who were relocated to far-flung villages across the British countryside weren't always ones relating to religious practice. They weren't always ones that could be sorted by helpful interventions from a rabbi. Remember, not all of the Jewish refugees were particularly religious. For some, their Jewishness was just one more way, in addition to, say, being German or Austrian, that they stood out as being different. Otto Deutsch was evacuated from Newcastle to the village of Morpeth. We were a great novelty. I mean, anybody from London would have been a novelty, but Jews and 
uh, Austrians, not even English. I remember at school they used to say, please can we touch them as if we were from outer space? Because this is a small, tiny community. Uh, everybody, or most people, went to the pits. That was the tradition, you know. We went in minus in pit country. Marion Lesser was originally placed with several other refugees at a Jewish school in London, an environment that was relatively easy to acclimate to. But then all of the children from that school were evacuated to remote Wiltshire. The village people didn't accept us very well. As far as we were, as far as they were concerned, we are Germans or, or Austrians. So we were the enemy. And uh, I think there were 16 of us from Austria and Germany. And we used to get together and gabble, gabble away in German until the headmaster separated us and put us into English-speaking families. And we soon learned English. We were uh, going to a village school. I was there for two years. Like Marion, Fred Barshak found himself in the entirely ironic position of being ostracized, not because he was Jewish, but because he was perceived as German. He was actually from Austria, which had been annexed as part of the Third Reich. When I went to this public school, I won a scholarship to a public school. And there I certainly did have problems because it became... it. Uh, it became known, there are no secrets very long, it became known very, very quickly that my original name was Fritz, not Fred. It also became known that I, well, the fact that I was Jewish was known to everybody, but the fact that I came from something which now belonged to what was known as Großdeutschland at the time when, in 1942, um, it certainly gave me some problems in the school. Identity is such a nebulous concept, and we're dealing with so many different components here. Components that are sometimes competing, sometimes intertwining. Varying degrees of religious observance, varying degrees of attachment to a country of origin, varying degrees of affinity for Britain. Let's hear Mike try to untangle it. At the other end of the scale, it was less important for uh, the children who came from middle-class assimilated German and Austrian families from Berlin and Vienna and Frankfurt and so on where their Jewishness had been very much something of a cultural identity, but not a religious one, or very little religious identity in that. And for those children, it was they felt it was easier to assimilate into English society, or rather the challenge was going from being a German child to an English child, rather than from a German-Jewish child to an English child. So in many cases, that was a bit easier for them to make that um, transfer. In other cases, it was more difficult because some of the children, particularly the older ones, were very steeped in German education and culture and to find themselves in a very foreign, non-German, English-speaking world was actually um, very difficult for them to, to, a very difficult one for them to grasp. 
So far in this podcast series, we have mainly been hearing accounts from refugees about events that they recall, about the twists and turns of their journeys, about what happened. But on this topic, the more abstract theme of identity, we have the benefit of being able to hear more than just what events transpired. We have an opportunity to hear in their own words how some of our interviewees feel with several decades of hindsight of their identities evolving. Let's listen to what some of them had to say. Here's Otto Deutsch again. Well, it doesn't have to be whether I'm British or Jewish because I believe the two doesn't, don't clash with each other. I'm certainly not Austrian. Uh, I have still, I must admit, I still have a little bit of the Austrian culture with me. I still love to hear Leha. I still love to hear the old um, uh, songs of, of Vienna of years ago. Of course, quite a number in my so-called music library. But I'm very British. Um, to me, this is my home. And here is Leslie Brent. The price of assimilation. Loss of contact with Judaism, I suppose, and with the Jewish community. Um, some slight element of guilt about having hung on to my English name once I left the army, once I didn't have to have an English name anymore. And that's why I've returned to my, my Jewish surname more recently. I, 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 miss, I should say that I've been, on the whole, incredibly happy in England. And I'd identif I've identified with English culture and society and through politics and university and academic life and so on. I feel very much at ease in this country. Here is Susan Einzig. Um, unlike other people, I don't think I've ever become English. I don't think... I think that um, I've, I'm, and I've, I've in, in old, increasingly the older I've become, my identity depends on being what is so despised. The, you know, the, I'm a European, I'm a Jew, I'm a human being, I belong, I have no sense of, um, I mean, of, of, of Jewishness. And finally, many years later, Trudy Goldberg still had more questions than answers. Somehow I feel more, <laughs> I feel there's an identity, which is ridiculous. I mean, it was only eight, the first eight years of your life. I mean... The, the seven sixty-four years I've been British, lived British way of life. So why do I feel an identity 
with someone that that I was only mixed with eight years for eight years. I wish someone could explain that to me. It's difficult, isn't it? This podcast is a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. We are a charity supporting Holocaust refugees and survivors living in Great Britain. Learn more about our work at ajr.org.uk. Thanks to my colleague and Refugee Voices founding director, Dr. Bea Lefkowitz, and to Dr. Anthony Grenville for their support, and to Mike Levy for contributing to this episode. Miriam Silverman is our researcher, post-production by Ross Winter at Podcast Polishing. To learn more about the stories of the kinder transport refugees you heard from in this episode, please visit ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please let us know about it on Twitter or Facebook and help us spread the word. We'd also greatly appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a review if you can wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.